Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you took home ec in high school, you might think that this field is nothing more than baking muffins and sewing pillows. Today, journalist Danielle Drellinger is here to set the record straight. Home economics began as a scientific movement to change the way we cook and live at home. By the way, it also brought us the Rice Krispies treat, astronaut food, and Betty Crocker. Betty Crocker was never a real person. She was always created by a team of home economists. So they would just send out the scripts and the local stations would have somebody read the script. I mean, it probably was much more effective that way, right? I mean, you had Betty Crocker sounding like she lived next door to you because she might very well have. Also coming up, we use coconut water to make a Filipino chicken soup. And Kim Severson of The New York Times investigates the future of hydroponic farming. But first, it's my interview with Palestinian-American food educator Nadia Gilbert, who hosts the online cooking series Satem. Nadia, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with a simple, not-so-simple question. Could you define Palestinian exactly? What does that mean to you? Being Palestinian for me is a celebration. It is a culture that has so much beauty and joy and color and history. And for me, it's a constant discovery of more things about myself. I I think you wrote somewhere that one of your favorite movies was Amrika. And there's a quote from that movie. You live in this house, you live in Palestine, <laughs> which I liked. You want to talk about that? Yes. Oh, my gosh. That, that, that is one of my all-time favorite films. It was the first time I really saw myself represented on screen or my family. So America is about a mother and son who live in Bethlehem who immigrate to the United States, to rural Indiana, to live with her sister right after 9-11. And so it's a very tense time. It's really difficult for them to assimilate and, and integrate. And so it's just this really beautiful vignette of an Arab-American family. And I really resonated with that, this idea of, you know, we're in America, but we're not American kids, like we're Palestinian kids. And when we step into our house, we're we're in Palestine. <laughs> and so I just love that line because, you know, for me, it was it was very important for us to to know that, to know where we come from and to to be able to experience that in the home because we didn't really have a community outside that we could experience that with. Uh, You say lunch is still the biggest meal of the day in Palestinian culture. Could you take us through a typical lunch? Oh, gosh. Any meal, any meal is going to have so many different things to try. Like if you're sitting for a brunch or breakfast, you're going to have your bread, but then you're going to have eight different dips. You're going to have two different types of olives. You're going to have some dry za'atar and olive oil to dip things in. You're going to have 
tea and then at the end of the meal you're going to have your coffee it's a whole series of experiences but one of my favorite things about that way of eating and just about you know even if there's one one dish that's really the star of the show there's like always little sides and things that really just excite the senses and i love building different bites it's it's fun it's like an artistic creative experience just eating the food and I would say the constant is abundance, always abundant and generous and more than you could possibly need. Um, pies or hand, I call them hand pies. You call them meat pies or spinach pies or potato pies. Mm. I don't think people are familiar with these recipes as, as part of your culture. Mm. Could you just talk about them? Because I know you've done some videos about them and um, they're practical and they Sounds like a great idea. Oh, yes. Savory pies are just the king of the appetizer spread. You arrive at an event, and before the main meal has even come out, there are moajanat, we call them in Arabic, which are savory pies. And there's all different kinds. You'll have ones that are stuffed with cheese and parsley. You'll have ones that are stuffed with potatoes or little pies with meat on top. My all-time favorite is the spinach pies. But they're just so versatile and such a a great thing to serve at parties, but also they're so nice to have at picnics, to take out for lunch. They're just so good. Everybody loves them. (laughs) When you talk about Palestinian food, Mm. is that a subset of Arabic food? And if so, how, how would you define the two as, as being separate if they are separate at all? Yeah, I mean, you know, like the food of the Levant, which is, you know, that, that whole region, there's a lot of similarities within it. Palestinian food, Jordanian food, Syrian food, Lebanese food is all going to have a lot of similarities. You know, you start to go out to like Iran and Saudi and the Gulf, and then there it starts to have some different influences. But then even within the same country, like my grandma's going to make something differently than your grandma will. And I think that that's something really important to highlight is that there is no one way that something is perfectly traditionally made. But then there are definitely regional dishes like in Jordan, mensaf is the national dish. You want to describe what that is? Sure. So mensaf is slow cooked lamb, which is cooked in something called jamid, which is like a hardened, dry yogurt. It comes in this dry ball and it dissolves in water and it becomes this really savory, very tasty yogurt sauce. And so the lamb is cooked in that and then it's eaten alongside rice. But if you can't find jamid, you actually can make mensaf with cow's milk and adon, which is that like yogurt drink. You can make it with a basically using a mix of different yogurts. And in Palestine, a very, very well-known dish is msachan, which is a dish made of roasted chicken, which is roasted in sumat, which is this crushed berry that's got this kind of citrusy flavor, very, very popular spice. And so it turns things pink when it cooks them. It's like this very bright pink color. And so the chicken is roasted with sumat, and it's put on top of a flatbread and topped with these caramelized onions that are also cooked in some and it is one of the messiest and most delicious meals of all time. So I say sumac, which is so American, right? <laughs> um, so when you hear me or other people like massacre the language, I mean, you say sumac, you, you don't, I guess, pronounce the C. So it's so lovely to hear you 
say it properly, or, or I would say musican or something. Mm. You know, so is that hard for you sometimes when people like me just don't have the pronunciation properly done? No, I mean, you know, I think I love when I hear people refer to my my people and refer to my f- people's food. You know, it just brings me joy to hear it. Um, I do. <laughs> the one that I do end up correcting people on a lot is hummus. Because I just, I, the one thing is, I, I don't know what it is, but hearing hummus just like really, I don't, I can't like just make it, it needs gusto. Like it's not hummus, it's hummus. It's like, it's, it's right. so fortifying. It's this strong bean. You got to give it that strength when you say it, you know? <laughs> so don't be wimpy when, when you say hummus. Yeah. Don't be wimpy when you say hummus. It's not hummus. Yes, it's there hummus. You there you go. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm getting it. Um, you know what's interesting is is the language has not just emphasis in it, but it has heart and soul in the way you say a word. I mean, mm. when you you it's not hummus or hummus, <laughs> you know, it's hummus. It's 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 got it's got some gusto in it, mm-hmm. and that seems to me be very different than English, right? It, mm. it has an extra element that uh, English does not have. Mm. Yeah, I feel very very blessed to have grown up speaking both Arabic and English, you know, that was something that was really important to my mom that, you know, if we were going to grow up in America, we were going to speak Arabic, we were going to be able to communicate in that way, and which I'm infinitely grateful for. And, you know, when, when you speak multiple languages, you see how different languages affect the way that you even begin to speak and think, right? Like the rhythm of right. the way that you communicate with others and the way that you think is very different. And, I would agree that there's just, there's a fire and a passion in the Arabic language. You know, the ways that we describe somebody we love are just so deep and intense and poetic. You don't just tell somebody that you love them. You tell them that you would die for them. You know, it's like, you don't just call someone your friend. You call them like your person who your soul speaks to. And everything in the language has this fire and this real depth within it i guess on one one side of the universe is new england speak and on the other side is arabic they could not (laughs) be farther apart. totally totally it's very like clean like frugal like like direct less is more yeah (laughs) nadi it's been a pleasure thank you so much for being on Buster. oh thank you so much for having me it was really lovely to speak with you that was nadia gilbert host of the youtube channel satan Now it's time for my co-host Sarah Moulton and I to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, and she also stars in Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. So, Chris, have you ever attempted something that, you know, you aspired to be able to make and just decided it wasn't worth it? You might as well just go buy it from somewhere. Yeah, there are two things. Marshmallows, I mean, just go buy them. There's a million people making great marshmallows. But the other thing... The serious one is the macaron, those French cookies with the oh, filling yeah. inside. Forget it. I mean, I, I once tried to do it. <laughs> I should have taken a picture because I could put that on my disaster you know, file. It's just so much work. I mean, yeah. there is a reason the French actually buy their desserts. They don't make them very often. Yes. But those are just – forget it. I mean, those are too much work and everything's got to go exactly right. Yeah. I tried making English muffins, and I made them, and they were fine, and they looked like it, but they just weren't the same. 
I don't know what happened there. And they're not hard to make either. There are a few supermarket things like Heinz ketchup, like don't fool with it. It's much better than homemade. Right. And those English muffins, Thomas's English muffins or whatever. Yeah. They're yeah. really good. They are. They are really good. So anyway, time for a call. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling and where are you calling from? Hey, this is Ben Hopper from Western Wisconsin. Hi, Ben. How can we help you today? Well, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I was just tasting the goat, but... Uh, you, what? Was, you were uh, what? <laughs> what were you doing? That's a new one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> excuse me, pardon. Uh, I had an escaped goat. I'm a vegetable farmer here in Wisconsin and uh, just had an escapee, but uh, I was gifted a bottle of pumpkin seed oil from a neighbor who is actually a producer at Hay River Pumpkin Oil. So I make salad dressing with it. I make like a tahini salad dressing with it, but I'm just curious on other uses of how to use it and what it's good for. Well, let me just say for people who don't know anything about pumpkin seed oil, it's toasted. So, you know, think a toasted sesame oil, toasted pistachio oil, toasted walnut oil. It's got a robust flavor. It's a strong oil. When you make your vinaigrette, do you cut it with any vegetable oil or do you use it straight up? The one dressing that I do make with it, I use one cup olive oil to one-third cup of the pumpkin seed oil. Oh, that's interesting, with olive oil, because I would have thought more to mix it with vegetable oil just to keep its flavor. You can use it in many different applications. It's terrific on roasted vegetables with winter squash, with beets, you know, beet salad, drizzle it on cheese. Oh, sure. Or it'd be nice over ricotta. I mean, you could think toasted sesame seed oil, but to me, it's more interesting than that. Yeah, it's got a totally different flavor than that, yeah. You don't cook with it. You finish with it. You use it raw, is what I'm trying to say. Sure, yeah. I think it'd be nice on tomatoes, as a matter of fact. Chris, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, pork. Our food editor, Matt Card, puts it on vanilla ice cream. Oh, wow. He's a little odd. You know, it's okay. Oh, but I like that idea. (laughs) Sweet potatoes, you know, or squash in the winter, and I think it's nice with that. Or drizzle over risotto, maybe. It's very distinctive and strong, and I would use small amounts. And I think you're absolutely right. Cut it with something else if you're going to use it in a dressing. One other thing I would say, I think you should keep it in the fridge because those nut and seed oils tend to go rancid very quickly. And if it gets a little thick, don't worry about it. Just pull it out, let it sit on the counter, and it'll get back to a more liquid state. So when you say pork, what sort of pork dish would you have? Well, if you did a roast, for example, I know no one does roast anymore, but do a roast pork, it would be nice. Pork chops would be nice. I mean, just to finish a little drizzle. If you're going to make a paste, for example, for a roast with spices... Instead of using vegetable oil, use the pumpkin seed oil as the base for the paste, for a wet paste, right? That would be great. You know, it would be nice in a pesto. Oh, yeah, that would be delicious, yeah. I think we've hit 12 ideas, and here we go. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Good luck with the goat. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Have a good day. Thanks. Okay, bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Michelle from California. Hi, Michelle. How can we help you today? Yes, I wanted to know, uh, whenever I bake muffins or cupcakes, I use the little paper liners, and sometimes they stick and sometimes they don't. So I was wondering, you know, if you had any idea why. It has to do with the fat content of the cupcakes and the temperature. Have you ever tried using the parchment paper wrappers? Uh, no, I haven't. Because those are great. Oh, uh, Okay. 
The other thing you could do with the wrappers you do have, since you probably still have some in-house, yeah. is just use a light vegetable oil spray and spray them before you put in the batter. Yeah. Chris, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I'm disorganized and lazy, so I never have <laughs> muffin, you know, the little cups. I don't like nonstick in general, but I, I'll use a nonstick here and then butter them, not spray them, which I think works a little better. And I, that's how I've made yeah. muffins all the time, and that seems to work pretty well. But I would agree with Sarah. I think the basement parchment ones are great, and you could just spray them a little bit with some spray. The worst thing you can do is bake in those you know, light-colored tins. Even if you spray, I find that it's very hard to get them out. So a dark nonstick with buttered will probably work pretty well. Oh, okay. Well, perfect. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. Thanks for calling. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. Take Thank care. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you're looking for culinary inspiration, give us a ring anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is JC. How can we help you? Well, my question is about my grandma Zelda's recipe for candied crab apples that she uh-huh. would do with Red Hots. And I finally decided to make them this fall. And I was really surprised by the recipe's title, which is Frozen Spiced Pickles. So I'd like to quickly describe them. And then I'm hoping that you can help explain why this process may or may not be pickling. Okay, go ahead. They're apples she would start with like the size of a golf ball and you cut the blossom end off, prick the skin a couple times, and then you simmer them for a few minutes in a simple syrup spiced with red hots, cloves, ginger. Then you submerge them in the simple syrup and freeze them. The apples themselves are, I love them. They're these like neon red, wrinkly, golf ball sized apples that are floating in this red sugar syrup. They kind of taste like a baked apple or kind of like cinnamon applesauce wrapped up in fruit leather because the skin gets nice and pliable. So I'm just wondering if you've ever heard of anything like this and if you can talk to me about the pickling process. There are two things going on here. You have apples cooked a little bit in a hot sugar syrup that's flavored with Red Hots, but that's not really pickling. Right. A freezer pickle is like a regular pickle, except that instead of heating up the vinegar and the water and the salt, et cetera, spices and putting them over the vegetables or the cucumbers in a jar, et cetera, canning them. You're going to pour it over at room temperature and then throw in the freezer. But what you're really doing is taking fruit and sugar syrup. So it's not a pickle, but it's a freezer red hot candy crab apple, I guess. That's the best (laughs) term for it. But it sounds like a great – now I'm really interested. Okay. So you have crab apples. I got plenty of those. What else goes in the mix? Do you have a recipe for this? I do. So it's a simple syrup, a cup and a half of each sugar and water. And this is really funny. It's three quarters of a cup of red cinnamon is what Grandma Zelda called it, which is red hot. Nine cloves, three eighths teaspoon of ground ginger, eighth of a teaspoon of salt and a little lemon juice. Simmer it in the simple syrup for five minutes. You pick the apples up by the stem cover it with the strained syrup, and freeze it. Huh. Man. When I did it, they're in my fridge right now, and I love them. Yeah, this is great. How do you eat them? I'm intrigued. My grandma would always serve them with, like, lunch next to, like, a beef 
pasty. Um, she yeah. grew up on a farm. I just kind of snack on them or throw them on my dinner plate as a little treat. I think with a big roast, it would be like a pork roast. Oh, boy, that would be good. It's so funny. I see it as straight to dessert with a little vanilla ice cream. Ooh. This is fun. But it, you know what? Yeah. It sounds like it would be a, something you'd have around, right? And you could pull out at the last minute and serve it with a whole bunch of stuff. So, Yeah, they're really beautiful. JC, that's a really cool story, and I love the recipe. Red hot crab apples. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for helping me think through it. I did not think they were pickles, but it's just the no. funniest title. Yeah. That's a great recipe. Well, JC, you taught us something. Yes, we're, you did. We're the students today. Thank you. I'm definitely going to try that. Yes. That's great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Great You're idea. You're welcome. Take thanks. care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're taking a look at the real history of home economics. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. 
I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. What are you doing, Janet? You haven't had your nose out of those papers for an hour now. Well, I'm trying to figure out what courses to take next term. I have to do that, too. What are you taking? Well, I have to fill one science requirement, and English, and I want to take home economics. Home economics? Why in the world do you want to take home ec? Why? Well, because that's something I'm going to need to know, and so are you. That was a clip from the 1955 film, Why Study Home Economics? That's also the question journalist Danielle Drellinger asked when she set out to uncover the surprising history of the home economics movement. Danielle, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. So if you were to define home economics in a sentence, uh, (laughs) how would you do it? You know, it's funny you should ask that because the field itself argued for decades about exactly how to define it. And they came up with a bunch of different definitions over the years. But I would say it is the science, art, and craft of helping people live better. So your mission is to redefine and rehabilitate home economists. Yeah, yeah. And just to share the completely unknown feminist history that just I I wanted to make everybody else as amazed as I was. You know, they created all sorts of innovations that are in our lives today. And they home economists created the food groups. Um, They popularized the calorie, which, you know, I mean, arguably we might wish they hadn't. Uh, They invented the Rice Krispie treat. (laughs) Hey, there's now that's important. (laughs) Exactly. Well, it is amazing, and and I think this is a long story that has a lot of history. Let's go back to the beginning. My understanding is towards the end of the 19th century, there was a movement to get cooking out of the home into central kitchens and to free up women from what was considered, you know, really unglorious labor. 
So was that part of home economics at some point or was home economics always trying to focus on doing it better, for example? Oh, so that is exactly what home economics was about. Yes. To bring science into the home to make housework more efficient so that women could spend less time on it and have more time to take care of their children, to work a paying job, to be involved in civic affairs. But from the start, home economics had this tension of whether it was empowering or repressive. You know, was it giving women opportunities or was it keeping them in the kitchen? And they absolutely did talk about things like communal kitchens. Ellen Swallow Richards, one of the founders of the field, thought it was just ridiculous that every night, every single house had somebody, right, slaving over that hot stove when you could just do it centrally. She believed in takeout. She had a takeout restaurant. She saw that with the Industrial Revolution, most of the interesting and economically productive tasks had left the house. And what was remaining was she she called it something like the endless work never done. So so what happens in the 20th century? So we've gone from this massive change in the kitchens and now World War I shows up. Does this now focus on conservation? Right, right. So World War I was when the home economics movement really came to public attention. Rationing was voluntary. So the U.S. Food Administration, headed by Herbert Hoover, I mean, the first thing he did was telegram to Flora Rose, who co-founded Home Economics at Cornell, to say, can you come? We need you. And they came up with all of these pamphlets and these public health campaigns. There were these financial resources coming together as well that sent community educators out into the countryside. Sometimes they would go in a converted railroad car and they would show women how to can things, how to use pressure canners, uh, slow cookers. They had this sort of proto crock pot that was buried in a heat-retaining outer shell, Hmm. and it could be coal-fired, it could be wood-fired, and Booker T. Washington was very interested in getting it down to Tuskegee, where his wife, Margaret Murray Washington, was enormously influential in home economics in black communities. Coal-fired slow cooker. I just love it. Um, Okay, so let's, let's talk about the media now, because all of a sudden, home economics sort of merge with food companies and media. Right. So food media and home economics were tied up together from the start of the home ec movement. And it was when radio happened that really took off. These radio waves just needed someone to fill the time. (laughs) So they would have, for instance, housewives just talking about their homes and what they did, and that became this whole arm of called Radio Homemakers. Good afternoon. This is Leanna coming to you with our Kitchen Platter broadcast over station KMA, Shenandoah, Iowa. And the Bureau of Home Economics, which began at the same time in 1923, had a very successful, long-running daily radio program with Aunt Sammy, 
who yeah, was I Uncle saw Sam's that. sister. Uncle she Sam's was, sister. She was not his wife. People thought that she was his wife, but <laughs> I went back to the original press release. She was his sister. And she, you know, would have these little, like, daily dialogues that were written by the Bureau of Home Economics. Uh, and at the same time, yeah, you had this sudden growth of what came to be called business home economics, and that was companies doing the same thing, only they were trying to sell you their products. And Betty Crocker is the best known. And she had a cooking show on the air where she would talk people through making recipes and you could even graduate from the program. You had to sort of fill out a little card saying that you'd made all of the recipes and your grocer had to annotate, to like initial it to say <laughs> that you had used only gold metal flour. And the other thing you, you write about is so interesting is that obviously in different places, her voice was different because it was being read by a local actress. So... The Texas Betty Crocker on the radio sounded different than the New Jersey one, right? Right, right. So if anybody doesn't know, Betty Crocker was never a real person. She was always created by a team of home economists. So they would just send out the scripts and the local stations would have somebody read the script. So yes, I mean, it probably was much more effective that way, right? I mean, you had Betty Crocker sounding like she lived next door to you because she might very well have. It's time for Betty Crocker, and here she is, America's First Lady of Foods. Your Betty Crocker, brought to you by General Mills. Hello, everybody. It's cooking school time here in our kitchen again. For a boy who hasn't learned the technique of managing the cooking of several different foods at one time, this idea of cooking two or three kinds of vegetables in one saucepan is very practical. Finally, a brownie mocha tort with chocolate curls. This is made with a brownie mix in round cake pans. So do join us here in our kitchen again tomorrow. I'll be expecting you. This is Betty Crocker. And and she was wildly popular. I mean, they had a whole, as you pointed out, they'd have a whole crew of people answering these letters, which ran into the thousands per day. So people related to her and thought she was quite real. Right. And, you know, lest we think that people, oh, people used to be so naive, right? And we're all smarter today. Uh in the 80s, my mother worked as a home economist at General Foods, and she worked on a project for General Foods International Coffees, where they had a person with you know some name they made up, and every month they would send out a little newsletter about her life, and they asked for people to send in their favorite experiences with General Foods International Coffee, and my mom got this package of responses that all said things like, Dear Susie, it was so good to hear from you again. <laughs> well, your mother also wrote scripts for The Kool-Aid Man. She did. The Kool-Aid Man even had a series produced by Marvel. The, he fought evil villains called Thirsties. So oh it's my like, God, he did. I forgot all about yeah. that. <laughs> so the 50s show up and... Everything gets, from my perspective, gets turned on its head because all of the science is now going to processed and fast foods, right? And then the home ec economists got sort of drawn into that and often started working for these big companies. Is that a fair comment? I would say that is a piece of what happened. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about the 50s because it was the time when like all of this goes wrong in that 
home economists had been so powerful, had been so, it had been such a smart field. This was a field that women went into because they wanted jobs, you know, because they could, you know, they couldn't get into chemistry labs, but if they studied meat proteins, they could get a job in a home economics lab. And then after the 50s, I talked to I don't know how many women who took home economics in the 50s and 60s, and I read the curriculum, and it was really pretty dumb. <laughs> you were not taking physics in home economics courses anymore. I mean, home economists in the military developed space food, huh. and the government defunded the Bureau of Home Economics gradually over time and then closed it all together in the early 60s. Huh. It used to be that the Bureau of Home Economics did all sorts of scientific research into food, and now that was gone. And if you wanted to do the only place that was doing it was the food companies. And, you know, they believed that they were making life manageable with these convenience products. There's something about all of this, though, I find really curious, and there are two things. One is it's the marriage of cooking is something to avoid. There's no pleasure in it. And two, getting women out of the kitchen, which was a horrendous place to be in the late 19th century, and then being able to use their minds and, and their skills outside of the kitchen, which is quite understandable. Those two things come together. So we've never, until recently, have never considered cooking and the preparation of food central to a healthy culture. It was always to be supplanted by technology and science, right? That is a really interesting point. Uh I wouldn't say that they that there was no pleasure. I mean, one of the reasons there were so many recipes coming out of the business home economics world is that women still really liked to cook. Like all of their research showed that like women enjoyed cooking. It was the chore that they welcomed, you know, as opposed to vacuuming. But I also think that it's worth remembering that at the same time that you see, you know, the convenience cooking and the TV dinner, you know, that's the exact same time that we have this beginning of the food culture of today, you know, right. appreciating the pleasures of the table, of people reading Julia Child and watching her TV show. So it, it's an interesting, I guess, dual track. So home economics, I, I don't know, where is it today? Is it still being taught in schools is it, or is it just kind of disappeared? In fact, it is still being taught. So back in the 90s, the field rebranded itself as family and consumer sciences because the term home economics had so many stereotyped associations of, well, they call it stitching and stirring. Hmm. Uh, and they wanted to make it clear that it was something that was much bigger than that. And at last count, more than 3 million public school students in the U.S. were still taking the class every year. And there are still more than 100 college programs. And, you know, today it's very modern. It's very focused on solving community problems and social problems. Uh, it has this really unique ability to look at both the micro and the macro levels of society. Danielle, thank you so much. It's been, uh, it's been a great pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you. That was Danielle Drellinger. Her book is The Secret History of Home Economics, How Trailblazing Women Harness the Power of Home and Change the Way We Live. When I was in elementary school, boys took shop, girls took home economics. 
and in high school I took typing, which was much more useful than my Latin or Russian history courses. Now, all of this makes me think that a modern curriculum might teach one how to fix the Wi-Fi, unclog a sink drain, replace a smoke alarm, reboot a computer, reset your Apple password, refinish a cast iron skillet, install a car seat, and of course, make good espresso. So I'm all for teaching kids how to think, but if we can't even make a decent cup of coffee, what's the point? We asked listeners to send in stories, memories, and disasters from their home economics classes, and here's what they shared. Hi, my name is Kathy Kwan, and there's no way I would know anything about baking basics without home ec. My mother's idea of baking was cutting slices off a store-bought Hershey's chocolate chip cookie roll and putting them in the oven. I didn't realize it at the time, but home economics taught me some essential life lessons. Thanks, Ms. Dare. We were put into small groups, and each group had to create a tea. My group invited the wife of the principal, and when we went to make our little cakes, I made a mistake, and I put in baking powder instead of baking soda. Uh, I was teaching high school students foods class, and the one boy's kitchen was supposed to be making a pasta salad, and they didn't cook the pasta that went into the pasta salad. It was a dry rotini pasta from a box. Um, needless to say, it made the salad a little crunchy. It was 1986, and my mother didn't want me taking home ec because she didn't want me to become a housewife. I lied and told her that the other electives were full, so I had to take home ec. I forgot to take the butter out, and my punishment was I was the one who had to then cream the butter and sugar with cold butter the next day. I loved the cooking part of the class. We made English muffin pizzas. 12-year-old me scoffed, thinking that this was amateur hour and an easy A for sure. Then came the sewing part. By the end of the class, I was the proud new owner of pink frog shorts with a crooked pattern and one leg two inches shorter than the other. I still to this day do not know how to sew, but I do make a mean English muffin pizza. In Homac in 1972, Mrs. King taught us to lift the lid of the pot of boiling water, pointing it away from our face to let the steam out. I think of her every time I boil water here in Chicago, Illinois. I loved my career as a life skills teacher. What could be more important? This is Milk Street Radio. I'd like to thank all of our listeners who called in to share their home ec stories with us. After the break, Kim Severson takes us inside farming's high-tech revolution. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean 
that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Filipino-style chicken soup with coconut and lemongrass. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. So this is our chicken soup theme, right? Every culture (laughs) has chicken soup. Of course. It's almost always a winner, and this is Filipino-style chicken soup. So how do they make chicken soup there? So I don't think you can have too many chicken soups in your repertoire. And this is a great one to add. It has a ton of flavor, all comes from this coconut broth. The way they make it in the Philippines is they hollow out a piece of bamboo and add all of the ingredients into this piece of bamboo, cook it over an open fire for about an hour. It has tons of ginger, lemongrass, chicken that we're using here, boneless, skinless chicken thighs, just cut in half tossed with a little bit of fish sauce, 
And the coconut they use in the Philippines is green coconut. So the kind of coconut you would find, you'd stick a straw in it and drink coconut water out of. But the flesh in there is very different. It's soft, uh, very mild flavors. So they add chunks of that into the soup to really flavor the broth. Are we asking our viewers and readers and listeners to buy green coconuts? So that's my cue up. No, (laughs) we're using coconut water and you want to make sure you've got unsweetened coconut water. And we're using dried wide flake coconut, also unsweetened. And that's very important here. But the wide coconut, not the thin shreds. Sometimes in the market, they'll call them coconut chips. That is more indicative of the same kind of texture as the coconut you'd find in the Philippines. So you have fish sauce, coconut water, coconut, unsweetened coconut, chips or whatever, lemongrass, ginger, big flavors here. It's great. I mean, you could just drink the broth and not have the chicken or anything else, and you'd probably be very happy. But we do add a little bit of chicken. We're also adding in some chayote. So in the Philippines, they use chayote a lot. They also use green papaya. Chayote is a squash, more like a summer squash than a winter squash. It's green and bumpy and fun looking, but it has a really mild flavor and a sort of crisp, tender texture. So you get a little bit of that crunch in there, but the flavor is very mild. Some say it's bland even. However, that works to our benefit here because it really soaks up all of that flavorful broth. So you've got the flavor from the broth there, but you've got a little bit of texture from the crispness of it. Or zucchini, I assume, right, if you can't find chayote. certainly substitute with zucchini or yellow squash here. But if you can find chayote, it's got a really interesting, different texture. So this is standard soup technique, the uh, onion and ginger, the chicken, etc. Super easy. Saute those aromatics, add in the liquid, bring it to a boil, add the chicken, fish sauce. Let that cook till the chicken is tender. Then you add the chayote and the coconut. Let that go for about 10 minutes. Then off the heat, we take out the lemongrass and then add in some baby spinach. They would use chili leaves in the Philippines. We're using baby spinach and then serving it with some sliced chilies, lime wedges, and a little bit of steamed rice. Lynn, thank you. Filipino-style chicken soup with coconut and lemongrass. This has got to be in the top three worldwide chicken soup recipes ever. Agreed. You can get this recipe for Filipino-style chicken soup with coconut and lemongrass at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Next up, it's New York Times correspondent Kim Severson. Kim, welcome back to Milk Street. Very glad to be here, Chris. How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, You wrote a piece in the Times recently on hydroponics, but it's not my mother's hydroponics. (laughs) It's big tech, big money, big ag. So what are we talking about? Well, hydroponics are essentially vegetables that are grown in a water bath that has been supplemented with liquid nutrients. So it's growing food without soil. And there are some different ways that you can get a hydroponic vegetable. Uh, right now, vertical farms are uh, sort of all the rage. These are farms that are completely indoors, no sunlight, LED lights, uh, racks and racks and racks of lettuces growing in trays of water. But you can also have hydroponics growing in these new kind of high-tech greenhouses. So the idea of doing this is not necessarily new, but recently 
there's been, I think, a convergence of several cultural trends and also tech trends that have led us to the place where, you know, hydroponics is, uh, uh, it's big money. I think in 2020, there was $929 million that went into U.S. farming ventures, venture capital money. Chefs like Jose Andres and Tom Colicchio have invested in a vertical farm that's in New Jersey called Bowery. Um, and that, of course, catches everybody's attention. If if Tom Colicchio, who famously right. hated hydroponics, is into it, it must mean something. So, so what's the problem they're solving for? Uh, land use, importing fruits and vegetables, long distances, flavor. I mean, what, what, what is it we're trying to do with this new hydroponics? I think the number one selling point that I hear from so many people is we can shorten that supply chain and have fresher vegetables in cities on smaller amounts of land. Some people say that they can grow as much uh, on an acre of hydroponic vertical farming as you could in 100 acres of open field farming. So this sounds great. Uh, Reduce shipping, food is grown and distributed locally, land use is severely cut back in terms of how much land you need to grow. But there are two questions, right? Well, three questions. Uh, Cost, taste, and uh, nutrients. That is, is this stuff good for you or not? Nutritional studies, first of all, are notoriously awful and hard to do. Uh, Even (laughs) finding the right, uh, the, the similar conditions in batches of conventionally grown lettuce versus organically grown lettuce versus hydroponic lesson. I mean, you're almost comparing apples and oranges in a way. Um, So you're never going to have this definitive, well, aha, this has more, you know, antioxidants than that one. This, This particular piece of lettuce has this much more B vitamin in it or whatever. And, and also there are certain things the soil can do that uh, you just can't do in a vertical farm indoors. And some of that we just don't know. I, Dan Barber said to me that, you know, we know more about what happens in the ocean than we do about what happens in soil. I think a bigger issue is, is what these are going to contribute to our food supply and the food chain. You know, we, I think we learned during COVID that our food chain is much more fragile than we thought. So if you can produce food in New York City, that's going to help. But these things are, you know, you, we're not going to feed the country on vertical farms. So this is going to come down to cost. It's, it's all going to come down to price, which is what big ag always comes down to, right? So if they can produce lettuce or strawberries or anything else uh, at, a, at a lower price or the same price without the shipping cost, then this will take off. That's probably true. I think right now, um, the lowest retail price for uh, a, like a local hydroponic grown lettuce in your part of the woods in New England is about $2.50, $2.50 for a four ounce package, um, which comes out to almost $10 a pound, which I don't think you or I would pay $10 right. a pound for lettuce, right? Uh, the other issue is it all comes in packaged in these clamshells. So there's a, right. you can argue that it's, uh, you're not having to ship the food from California to New England, and that saves a lot of carbon output. But you've got this big plastic problem. 
You also have the electricity issue. Uh, the, the electricity required to grow lettuce indoors is, is about 10 times higher than it would in a heated greenhouse. So it's very expensive, you know, and particularly if you're using coal for that power, the environmental impact of hydroponics is, it starts to not look, look as good. So I've yet to ask you what it tastes like, and I assume you've done some tasting. I have done a lot of tasting uh, and have eaten, I've had hydroponic lettuce shipped to me. I've eaten tons of hydroponic tomatoes, and they actually were good. I would pay money for those tomatoes in the winter. Hmm. However, they are nowhere near the tomatoes I'm eating right now. And just, just pure complexity of flavor. I do think there is something delicious and magic about food that's grown in soil. So based on your research for the article in the Times, let's say five years from now, um, what do you expect to have happened? Do you think these big tech hydroponics will be available in most supermarkets? Or is this, you think, still going to be a high-priced, you know, luxury good? I think it'll be better tasting and, and more of it. I think it'll still be a little bit of a novelty. I don't think it's going to save, you know, people talk about it like solving food. There will be no food deserts because we'll all grow our lettuce in a warehouse, in a small community, in, in, a, in a, you know, an inner city. I think that's, that's a bunch of, I guess a technical term would be BS. But, um, but I think hmm. it's going to have its place and the price is going to continue to drop. Um, but I don't think this is a revolution by any means. When they can grow a good tomato, conventionally, hydroponically, <laughs> anyway, genetically, uh, th- that'll be the, that will be the revolution when you get good tasting food back. I mean, m- maybe hydroponics can allow us to go back and grow heirloom varieties of these things that were designed for flavor, not for shipping. And maybe that, you know, may be part of a revolution. I, uh, I'm open. I'm just I'm open too. trying to embrace the future, Chris. Well, I hope I'm there to, to see that great tomato. Kim Severson, thank you so much. The story of hydroponics, big ag, big tech, uh, and big capital. It may change the way we grow and eat. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was Kim Severson. She's a food correspondent for The New York Times. Her article is No Soil, No Growing Seasons, Just Add Water and Technology. If you tune in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or you can order our latest cookbook, which is Tuesday Night's Mediterranean. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.